Friday was a long time coming this week, but it's here. It has been a beautiful fall weekend, fall week in Northeast Ohio, just like the experts predicted it would be. Hope to see some more of it before the leaves all drop. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And as we often do lately, we're starting the podcast with election discussions. It's the last update we'll see before Election Day, November 7th. And it matters. How much money are the campaign spending for and against both the Ohio abortion amendment and the plan to legalize recreational marijuana? Lisa. Yeah, and I would say that there's a lot more money being spent on issue one than issue two. So let's start with issue one first. Uh, Protect Women Ohio, which is the group spearheading the No campaign, they've raised $9.9 million. Most of it comes from the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America Fund. They gave $6.1 million. They're a Virginia-based group. The Knights of Columbus, which is based in Connecticut, gave a million bucks. And then also Columbus... Catholic Diocese gave $300,000. And interestingly, Attorney General Dave Yost's wife, Darlene, gave $520 to protect women in Ohio. Now, on the other side of the coin, the yes side outspent the no side by almost three times. Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights raised $28.7 million. million of that comes from a D.C. nonprofit called the 1630 Fund. They also got uh, $3.5 million from the New York-based Open Society Policy Center, which is backed by uh, George Soros. And all but $2.3 million came from outside of Ohio on the yes side. $2.4 million from the ACLU of New York. And a million bucks from Michael Bloomberg. That's that's a lot of money coming in that is largely not from Ohio. Right. And we're seeing that in both issues. And of course, we saw that in the August election, you know, to uh, tamp down our constitutional rights. But um, it's, shall I move on to issue two? Absolutely. Okay. So the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana, which is the yes side, uh, like alcohol, they raised $1.2 million, most from marijuana companies and executives. So uh, the New York-based Curaleaf Marijuana Company gave about $200,000. Pharmaceutical RX out of Pittsburgh gave two hundred and. $50,000. And so far they have spent $818,000 of what they've raised. So they got about 389,000 left over the no side of issue two: protect Ohio workers and families. They've only raised $342,900. They've spent about 230,000 of that. Um, a big chunk of that came from the Ohio manufacturing association. They gave $101,000 and they also got a big donation from a manufacturing company owner, Angela Phillips, who owns a company in Middleton, Ohio. She gave $100,000 to the group. It would be easy to say that the marijuana industry is trying to buy an election, except for the fact that poll after poll has shown most Ohioans favor favor legalized marijuana. So, yes, the marijuana industry wants to profit from this, but they've tapped into something that people actually want. The shame of this is that the legislature, which is so out of touch with what Ohio wants, didn't do it on their own. And 
put whatever guardrails they think are appropriate for Ohio in. They could still do that because this is a statute. But if they go too far, once people have voted, there will be a backlash. They will pay a price for that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, um, there's been so little money on the no side of both campaigns. Yeah. The, um, I was thinking about the marijuana issue this morning because there are people that are still on the fence and people are still talking a good bit about it. Um, and, and it strikes me that (laughs) marijuana is an herb, right? It's of the earth. It's a plant. And throughout the history of people, people have used plants. It seems like outlawing it was taking away something that the earth has been giving. So imagine if this, we lived in an opposite universe where alcohol was not legal, marijuana was, and there was a ballot initiative to legalize alcohol. How do you think that would go? That's a good question. Well, the da- I mean- think about the dangers and all of all the things. I mean, marijuana is this herb. It's a plant that grows. With alcohol, people had to figure out how to do that. I mean, think about what went into creating the distillation process. I'm not going to explain why, but I've been reading a book about the history of turpentine. There's been a debate about when <laughs> artists started to use it in paint, that the long thought had been it was in the 1500s, but this book is making an argument that apothecary records from the 1200s show that's when it was. But but when they first started doing it, it was, it was essential oils. And the vapors that come out of distillation are explosive. I mean, if you don't cool them, it blows up. It's, it's like super dangerous. So we as a species really had to work to create alcohol. Forget fermented wine, which was probably automatic. I, I just, it's odd to me that we're fighting so hard against something that is basically a plant when we've legalized something that took a lot of work to create. Well, I mean, stretching back to the 30s in the reefer madness days, there's just been a really negative and sometimes racist stigma attached to a marijuana. You know, and of course, we tried prohibition in the 20s. It didn't work. It actually led to the rise of organized crime in, in America. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I just think that the marijuana is so much easier to say yes to. And since we've already said yes to alcohol, I, I just don't understand how you could say no to marijuana. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. And I think the clearest way to view that, put it in reverse. If marijuana were legal and alcohol were illegal, I think the ferocity of the debate against would be much higher than can be said for, for marijuana. Well, we well, have more science. More, yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot more details on it and drunk driving statistics and all sorts because we've been studying it. Yeah. yeah but I agree. Have. Prohibition did not work. No, no, <laughs> it didn't. And really, the prohibition of marijuana is not working. All it's done is been used to target minorities, to put them in jail. And it's created this dangerous industry where, where some bad guys mix in very dangerous stuff with the marijuana that has caused cause some real danger to people. So if you legalize it, at least it would be much safer. We'll know how Ohio feels in another week and a half. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This very likely has never happened before, largely because we've never had an Ohio Secretary of State who would do such a thing before. But we know now just how many voters Frank LaRose purged from the voter rolls in the middle of voting. Layla, what's the number? Jeremy Pelzer tells us that it's it's nearly 27,000 inactive Ohio voter registrations that were deactivated late last month under this directive from LaRose. These are voters in all Ohio counties except three 
who who didn't cast a ballot or respond to mailed notices from elections officials over a six-year period. There, the three counties, Cuyahoga, Summit, and Lucas counties, were exempt from the order to purge the inactive voters because each of those held at least one local primary or charter election within 30 days of the deadline. But hundreds of voters were removed from the rolls in each of our other Northeast Ohio counties. And, and Democrats really hate this practice because they argue that it disproportionately affects liberal leaning groups of Ohioans, students, low income people and minorities, and that can result in eligible voters no longer being registered to vote. But the timing of this move has them particularly upset because it's happening after voting has already begun. And LaRose could have have have, you know, he could have moved uh, this this timing. He, in fact, he did that in August before the special election where Republicans wanted voters to approve undermining democracy in Ohio. He did postpone this purging process. So, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, I, it, it's, we said it the other day. I mean, this is less a debate about Ohio's purging process, which we've had, and more about the idiocy of doing it in this short time period. There is no justification for doing it once early voting has begun. And he knows that because he's remaining remarkably mute. We're getting no explanation about why he's done it. And it gets back to what I've said before. He's really our worst secretary of state in history. He's not doing his job. He's supposed to guard the voter. He's supposed to protect voting. And he's assaulted it at every turn. And also egregious is the fact that he did this without warning. Typically, he would give fair warning so the voting rights groups could have a chance to contact people who are at risk of being purged and encourage them to re-up their registration. And this just sort of blindsided them. Yeah, I I wish I understood what his motive was. It would have been so easy for him to say, hey, come November 8th, let's get back to purging the rolls. And they could have done it. But it's just a strange one. And Again, he's not saying anything because there's really no defense. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next one's going to change the whole idea of calling somebody bird-brained. Are pigeons smarter than humans? How about a computer? What does new research from Ohio State University tell us about our cooing feathered friends? And Lisa, I give this to you because you are our bird aficionado. Yes, I'm a bird nerd and I, and I love pigeons. I don't know why people give them hell, but um, this Ohio State study was published in the iScience Journal. What they did was they found that pigeon problem solving methods for certain tasks are similar to the way a machine learns or AI learning. So lead, lead author and psychology professor Brandon Turner said they trained pigeons to sort different shapes and patterns into categories by pecking on a certain button. They were rewarded with a treat for the correct answer, didn't get anything if they were wrong, but they were using association and trial and error methods. The pigeons improved their correct choices from 55 to 95% for easy tasks and from 55 to 68% for more difficult tasks. And this is called associative learning. It's considered too primitive for advanced tasks, but when AI was given the same tasks that were performed by the pigeons, they did it the same way the pigeons <laughs> did, trial and error, associated learning. So they say, you know, and Turner says that humans typically will try to find rules or some sort of order to make the task easier, but without rules, they tend to give up on a task. But Turner says pigeons don't make rules, so it helps them perform better at some tasks than humans do. All right, Layla, so next up, you should ask the pigeons to write my obituary. (laughs) 
<laughs> Fascinating study. I, I, it just continues to to expand the marvels of the natural world. I read a book last year about all the different ways that animals communicate that we can't even begin to see, and it's amazing. This is well, a fascinating and, study. And pigeons, you know, people race pigeons. There are homing pigeons. Their pigeons were used in war to carry messages across the front lines. So, you know, they're not they're no slouch in the bird world. Out of respect for your respect for birds, Lisa, I did not call them rats with wings in the lead up question. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Appeals court judges have issued two rulings in recent weeks in which they found a Cuyahoga County judge committed outrageous behavior regarding defendants in her courtroom. Layla, who was the judge and what are the details on these disturbing cases? The judge was Shirley Strickland Saffold, and the the appeals court removed her from the case of Ricardo Vega III, and they said Saffold unfairly sentenced him to 17 months in prison on a gun charge that carried the presumption of probation, especially given the fact that he had no prior felony convictions. The accusation here is that Saffold was biased against Vega because back in 2022, she presided over Vega's attempted murder trial in which the jury acquitted him. And after that trial, she spoke to the jurors privately. And when she returned to the courtroom, attorneys who were present said that the judge told them Lady Justice was raped today. So a month later, Saffold announced that she was sentencing Vega to 17 months on the weapons charge, and his attorney argued that he has no prior criminal record, and Saffold tried to justify the sentence by pointing to some case that Vega had as a juvenile that was supposed to have been wiped away because he participated in a diversion program. She eventually agreed to a $10,000 appeal bond that let him remain free while this appeal was pending. But This case comes on the heels of another in which the court found Saffold unlawfully jailed a 67-year-old ex-Cleveland Clinic doctor who was accused of groping patients. His lawyer had asked to change his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity, so she ordered him to the jail and claimed that that was the only way to evaluate his competency to stand trial, which is not true. The court's opinion noted that state law says judges can only order people to be held in jail for a mental health evaluation if they refuse to cooperate with the clinic. And in this case, the the defendant wasn't given even a chance to to comply. Yeah, these are outrageous because you can't treat people this way. In the the first case, 17 months and saying that Lady Justice was raped, he was acquitted. And whether you agree with it or not, that's the system. He's not guilty of the crime, and you've got to sentence him accordingly. So it's kind of shocking she did that. In the second case, it was almost punishment because the defense was saying, I don't think he's fit to stand trial, and you can't do that. I do get the sense that the judge is frustrated. If, if you sat in court day after day after day watching the antics and seeing what you think is injustice, I, I would bet you'd get frustrated. Frankly, I've said it before. I don't know why anybody wants to be a judge. I would find that job maddening beyond belief. All of the jury questions and the voir dires, the repetition, it'd be mind numbing. Just sitting in a courtroom watching it is painful, except for the drama of the questioning of witnesses. So I understand where she's coming from. I think she's nearing retirement, but you can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't You can't just over, over run, run roughshod over the... Uh, the jury verdict. We've had a- I mean, and when the when the attorney accused her kind of of of, of uh, putting her own feelings about a case above above 
you know, the, the jury, she said, you know, I, I respect all verdicts. I mean, she kind of went back to baseline there, but clearly, clearly, I, I mean, I'm surprised we haven't heard other cases, re- you know, regarding uh, this kind of conduct, but I, it seems pretty I, recent. I don't think she has a long history of this. She's known as a tough judge. She's She's got pretty rigorous standards. She's one of the judges that work. You know, we've got judges over there that barely show this up. Is true. But she's somebody that mm-hmm. works. Um, and and she's largely had a pretty pretty strong career. She's been reelected handily. This seems actually out of character. This isn't Pinky Carr just running roughshod over people right. in a wild way. And again, I sense that it's the frustration of you know years of sitting on the bench, watching what what we know can be attorney. Yeah, she has been on the bench for decades. Yeah, and so I think she's years, frustrated, think. but that doesn't justify mistreating people. Interesting cases. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You got to figure you're in trouble when your teenage daughter takes the stand to testify against you. What is the verdict, Laura? I'm the former state legislator who resigned after he was accused of being of domestic violence. Guilty, at least of one charge. And this is former Ohio Representative Bob Young that we're talking about. He was convicted Thursday of striking his wife at his home in July. This was the incident that prompted him to resign his House seat. It was a visiting judge, Edward O'Farrell, who heard the one-day trial. No jury. It was in Barberton Municipal Court. He did acquit Young of assault involving his brother in the chaotic hours after the party. That's where we talked about uh, they went to his brother's house and there was a door smashed somehow young is 42 and he's going to be sentenced at a later date on this domestic violence charge but that's after other cases against young are completed because remember he faces allegations of violating protective orders stemming from this original charge and young is obviously a republican he's from green and he faces up to six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine for assaulting his wife but the judge did say he based his verdict partly on that testimony of the teenage daughter she said she was in an upstairs bedroom when she witnessed her dad strike her mother near the family pool he said the judge said that testimony was compelling and he stressed that the hit was not incidental and that's what the the uh defense attorneys had said apparently young testified he was the victim in these cases which is is just a mind boggle well the the scary thing about this is it wasn't just the one case i mean he was stalking and he was doing follow up right. things phoning Calling, he yeah have. and we've all anybody that's been in journalism for any amount of time have seen cases like this that end really badly, you know, that the guy can't let go. And eventually the violence claims victims in a really horrible way. I hope the judge does whatever it takes to make sure that doesn't happen. His daughter, his wife deserve to be protected. And he has shown that he's out of control. He's a serious danger here. And whatever the judge does needs to provide those safeguards Otherwise, we're going to be telling the tragedy story sometime down the road. Yeah, this this one, usually you, you figure when there is a domestic violence charge, ends up being dealt with in the family. I don't remember ever talking about a trial for a domestic violence charge. So, you know, kudos to the, the wife and the daughter for being able to testify to what happened. And this just, I, I, feel, I feel for this family because these poor this poor wife and this poor child who said she didn't report it or to call the police at this time because she'd done it three years ago and got in trouble for calling the police. So you know that 
this is not the first time they've been dealing with an issue like this. Right. And look, society's on notice. These people are in danger from this guy. He has mm-hmm. not let go. He has had repeated instances. So this is a test. Does society come up with a way to protect them from further danger from him? We'll be watching. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Can it be possible that wind turbines, the darling of green energy enthusiasts, have been around long enough that some already are obsolete? Lisa, what's an Avon company doing with the giant-sized turbine blades, which were made mainly with fiberglass, to keep them out of dumps? This is really fascinating, and I love the recycling and the upcycling aspect of this company. It's called Canvas. They're based in Rocky River, but they have a plant in Avon where they're making benches, planters, and picnic tables out of decommissioned wind turbine blades. Managing partner Brian Donahue says, you know, this is a solution to reuse the 500 to 8,000 blades that are uninstalled every year. And they're made of fiberglass, as you said, which is really hard to break down and it's not recyclable. So a lot of them were going to the dump. They typically last about 10 to 20 years. Um, So what they did is they... What they're doing is the blades usually are about 150 to 300 feet long. I actually saw one on a freeway once being moved on a flatbed truck. I was shocked at how big they are. They weigh up to 30,000 pounds. But what happens is they're cut in 30-foot sections called fillets, and then they're trucked to the Avon facility, and then they're cut into even narrower sections. So a finished piece weighs about 200 to 2,000 pounds, and it's got a teardrop shape because the blade has a fine edge, and then it kind of comes down into a more rounded on the backside. So there are 30 craftspeople at this facility, and they came up with 150 ideas after a brainstorming session, and they settled on 11 products. Um, they're these really, you have to see the pictures on cleveland.com. There's one on the front page of the plane dealer today, how they've made like benches with like a little roof or a cover over them. And what they do is they have artists come in and paint them as well. So it's a really creative idea. You can find examples currently at the Great Lakes Science Center. And there's one at the Every Child's Playground in Avon. And Canvas is looking into making other uh, products like sound barriers for highways and fountains out of these these decommissioned blades. What was what's cool about this is anybody that's driven down 90 heading east and you see the enormous one there that's going, yeah. it just dwarfs everything. Mm-hmm. This gives you the chance to get right up close to a section of the blade to really understand how humongous they are, mm-hmm. which you don't have any chance of doing. You just look up at that thing and think, my gosh, that is huge. So very cool that this company's doing that. I mean, I would think you're going to eventually run out of things to do with them that, you you know, how much need is there for all of these products? But cool that they're they're chopping them up into <laughs> fillets, as you said, and uh, making use out of them. The, the other thing that struck me from the story is how thick the fiberglass walls are on mm-hmm. these things. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. this is not what you think of as thin fiberglass. It's huge. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have another element of the Cleveland Police Consent Decree that's not being met. We talked about a big one yesterday. This time, it's Justin Bibb's contract with the police union that's in the way. Layla, what's going on here? Listeners will remember that a few weeks ago, the city had struck this new agreement with the police unions that significantly increased pay and and also made the change to 12-hour shifts. Well, another facet of that agreement was that if officers 
who are not the focus of a civilian's complaint are found during the course of that investigation to have committed minor infractions, they can't be disciplined. So in other words, you know, they'll look the other way if they just happen to stumble upon evidence of your minor infractions while they're investigating a civilian complaint about somebody else. If if the violation is a higher level, that's that's different. Those follow the disciplinary guidelines that have been approved under the consent decree. But the Justice Department is arguing that this new policy violates the consent decree. They say collective bargaining can't help officers dodge accountability and, and some low-level offenses should require discipline, they're arguing. That, like, for instance, failing to show up to a mandatory court appearance or working moonlighting shifts without approval or committing minor misdemeanors. U.S. District Judge Sol- uh, Solomon Oliver, who's overseeing the consent decree, says he might have to get more involved with sorting this out with the city and the Justice Department and the monitoring team. You know what struck me about that contract change is that when the police are investigating you, they don't work that way. If if you know if investigating right. Young for for beating his wife, the police saw that the wife had marijuana in the house or some illegal drug. They wouldn't say, well, that's a minor crime that that is unrelated to why we're here. So we'll ignore it. They charge her. And so, so I don't quite understand that. I'm not saying at all that his wife does drugs. That's not what I'm <laughs> saying at all. I'm not. There's no <laughs> allegation of that. But that that's what they're saying with the police. If I'm investigating bad behavior by one cop and I notice bad behavior by another, we're going to let that go if it's minor. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what where does that come from? I mean, how do, what other right. aspect of life works like that? Right. It's also troubling to read in the story that the Justice Department says the city didn't notify them until till after the details of this agreement had been worked out. The lead negotiator for the city said the discipline issue was an 11th hour addition to the agreement, so they didn't have time to discuss this with the, the DOJ or the monitor. Yeah. So, I mean, city council still has to approve the agreement before it takes effect, so there's that stopgap there, but... But that was really shocking. We've been we're eight years into this, yeah, and and that is a that's a pretty significant change to operations that that has a direct effect on uh you know is is you know directly correlated to what the the consent decree is trying to achieve. And there here. was no need to put that in. It wasn't there before. They added it. And why are you trying to help police misbehave? That's the opposite of what. The consent decree is about. So I, I'm a little bit surprised that Justin Bibb signed off on that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Taylor Swift obviously is one of the biggest stories of the year. She's created her own mini economies in any city she's appeared in. She's taken the NFL by storm by dating Cleveland Heights native Travis Kelsey. Is another Cleveland Heights man the oldest official Swifty? Laura. He's definitely the world's oldest practicing doctor who is a Swift fan, but I'm not sure. I don't know the Guinness World Records, Book of World Records hands out the oldest Swifty award. His name is Howard Tucker. He's 101 years old. He graduated from Cleveland Heights High School in 1940, earned his medical degree, became the chief of neurology for the Atlantic Fleet during the Korean War, held faculty positions at Case Western Reserve and Columbia University, and 2021 was recognized by the Guinness Book as the world's oldest practicing doctor. Well, it took him all of that to get into Cleveland Heights High School's Distinguished Alumni Hall of Fame. The induction ceremony was held this month, and in his acceptance speech, he noted about all 83 years it took to earn the honor, 73 more than fellow inductee Kansas City Chiefs tight end 
Travis Kelsey. He graduated in 2008, was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2018. He said, I'm hoping now that he and I are in the same fraternity, he will manage to get me an autograph of his lady, Taylor Swift. Apparently, his son collects autographs. And I'm going to mention our our former colleague for a second time this week, Jane Cahoon, who used to be on this podcast before she retired, sent us this tip. She was in the audience for this and sent a note saying, hey, you might be interested. I originally missed her email and she sent me a reminder. It's like, wow, that's a good story. We'll jump on that, which we did. Now the question is, will Travis Kelsey get this guy his autograph? Well, and he's like, should be a celebrity in his own right, 101 years old, still practicing at, um, and has a 10, has 100,000 followers on TikTok, by the way, which is impressive in his own right. I mean, so maybe my daughter, who has her own Taylor Swift podcast at school, will want to interview him. But I love, <laughs> I love Joey Marona's kicker on this story. Here's hoping Kelsey and Swift's love story helps Tucker fill the blank space in his autograph. Book. <laughs> yeah, and we had done a big profile on him because yes, he is actually two. I think pretty magical guy. Um, and this is just a delightful follow to that story so it's up to travis kelsey now are you going to continue this thread we'll have to see you're listening to today in ohio that closes out a week of our podcast we will return on monday thank you lisa layla and laura thanks to everybody who listens hope you have a great weekend <laughs> <laughs>